real people, real conversations over coffee. This is Meet Me for Coffee. Hi, I'm Stephen Perkins. I play drums, Jane's Addiction, Corner Pyros, Infectious Grooves, Methods of Mayhem. There's a bunch of other ones I can't think of. And you know what? Let's have a little coffee break together, right? Join me for coffee. Yeah, man, uh, we're meeting for coffee, but you know what? The great thing is you're here and uh, we've tried to make this happen a few times and officially it's going down. My fans are going to go crazy. The listeners are going to go crazy because um, World Rock Countdown is uh, syndicated with this show as well. And uh, I want to tell you that the, the intro to Bin Caught Stealing, it interests me. Uh, off the Ritual de lo Habitual back in 1990, How'd you come up with that intro? Well, it's quite spontaneous. Not only did the lyrics and the, the chord changes have a sense of humor and kind of, uh, you know, in a sense, jazzy, opposed to, to blues rock or rhythm and blues, but the lyrics happened to work exactly right with the dog in the moment. The dog was brought into the studio just to hang out with us. And when the two big power chords hit, wah, wah, the dog went, oh, 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 oh. and his microphone, Perry's microphone was going through a SPX 90. And that would have a different effects at that time. The dog sounded like a massive Great Dane. It actually wasn't that big of a dog, but the actual sound effect through the microphone brought this, this muscle and these teeth and the lyrics and the sense of humor that the song had and the, the bounciness. And it worked perfectly with this dog barking, reacting to this big power chord and then silence. And as we listened back, we thought it, it couldn't get better. This is the perfect moment for, uh, to cue the dog. <laughs> and there it was. And is there clapping? There's clapping as well in the beginning there, yeah, no? You know, we overdub and make music. We try a bunch of different things. Uh, and as far as a, a day of percussion, which includes clapping and, and having a good time around the mic as a band, um, some of it doesn't get used when we go to the final mix, and some of it does. And I think when we were mixing that tune, there was that moment when – Everything kind of works together when you listen closely pre-song. You hear some commotion, and let's leave that in. You know, there's. Um, I think the the most emotional and and I guess creative moments in the band were about listening to each other and maybe taking a mistake and and microscoping it and then amplifying that mistake and making that something that was something in a sense a hook and. Uh, I think with jazz music, especially, there's such a great conversation between musicians. And with Motown and rock and rhythm and blues, the conversation disappears a little, but there's events that react to the lyrics. And the Beatles or Pink Floyd, there's something would happen that would be cued by a lyric. And Jane's Addiction had a love of both jazz and rock, dance music, uh, folk music. So all these different things that hybrid into a a sensitive song. Perry's poem uh, was just as important as how many syllables that were fit into each line and the phrasing of his song and his lyric and the melody was just as important as the drum part. Everyone had an equal part. And I think that's what made the band in a sense special because everyone was having this conversation, but still in this rock element. 
you know, growing up, I loved jazz, but I couldn't find too many musicians that played jazz in my world. But if you listen to some of the great rock drummers, John Bonham, Bill Ward from Sabbath, Ginger Baker, you can hear they love jazz music. And there's a swing to it, and there's a conversation to the drum part. And that, I think, has never gone away. You know, the romance that I have with my drumsticks it's a language, you know, and I get to speak this language. And just like a, a word that Perry would write, I would take his poem and read it. And then I'd have my own interpretation and then ask, ask, you know, ask the actual poet, what was his intention? What's the intent of this poem? And then take my interpretation plus the writer's interpretation and, and kind of put it in a blender and make a song out of it. And I was just talking to Perry the other day about what's going on in the world uh, pre-COVID, after this incredible, I guess you can say, three months of pressure cooking everybody and people having uh, fear and information and misinformation. And then of course, this massive bubble of, of emotion that's been happening for the last few days. You know, what, what do people want? I think people want to have a conversation. And sometimes you got to yell, and sometimes you got to whisper. And at the moment now, we're all yelling. But I, I do think this pressure cooker, the pressure cooker of three months at home and, and possibly losing your job and losing your, your career, it, it's got to pop somewhere. So I was telling Perry, I can't wait for his next poem, his next lyric, because after all these terrible emotions is going to come some silver lining of positive music art and something that will take these feelings and put it on paper put it on uh, an instrument put it on a canvas and so you know it's been painful to to wait to play my drums in front of other people i'm here alone practicing all the time but i want to get in front of people and do it so it's, like, it's like play you know it's like practicing a sport it's different than playing the game. When you play the game, you give everything. When you practice, that kind of urgency goes away. So, you know, I, I can't wait to get urgent and, and, and have a reason to uh, let my emotion out on the table. And I think that's what Jane's Addiction was. It was a great moment in 1985, 86, where music seemed to be a little, not safe, but a little bit in a pause, everything was in repeat. It seemed like a lot of bands were repeating each other. And there was a moment where James was able to break that, that glass ceiling and say, hey, we like punk, we like folk, we like psychedelic, let's try to you know, melt this together. And I think that's what you hear when you hear Cot Stealing, you hear uh, four personalities that come from different places reacting to a poem. And um, I'm excited for what's next for a band like Jane's or any other band I might even be aware of what they're brewing right now because of all this emotion. That's a very good answer. So you started playing drums at the age of 14. You got your first drum set, right? I started at eight years old, but eight I didn't get, a, didn't get a drum set till I was 13. So it was a rebirth. I had five years of playing on a pillow and a practice pad, but it wasn't a musical instrument. It was, a, it was a, a discovery how to bounce a stick. It was a discovery how to work my hands with rhythms and rudiments. But when I was 13, I got an instrument, and that had tones, and that had sizzle, 
and that had at low end and high end and crack. So all of a sudden there was a rebirth at 13. Not only was I, and it, the, the rebound was different from a pad. It was a drum head or a cymbal. And so I had this rebirth of not only the first five years of playing a pad and learning how to use my hand and bounce a stick. When I got my set, I was able to learn how to make music with these chops. And it's also using a drum pedal, a bass pedal and a hi-hat pedal. You don't practice that with a pad. You just practice your hands. So then I had this new discovery, how to make my body work together with rhythm. And I've had a few different moments in my life that, that changed the direction. That getting a drum set, uh, joining the marching band in high school when I realized there was 15 other drummers that can do the same thing I did. So I wasn't such a badass that I thought I was. That, that competitive moment that I want to be first chair and be the, the top drummer in the drum section. So... And then meeting Navarro, a great guitar player, because a lot of the guys in my life were, were good players, but not like Dave. So then I had a, a partner in crime. And then meeting the guys in Jane. So these moments that really change your projection and direction of what you do with your, your music and your art and, and you know, your practice ethic. You know, when I got a drum set, all of a sudden I can put on a Stones record or a Beatles record, and I sounded like the guy in the band because I had the same drum set and the same cymbals. And it wasn't just learning the rhythms. It was learning how to use dynamics. So, uh, yeah, so eight years old, I, I got sticks in a pad. At 13, I got a drum set. I met Navarro when I was 15. Uh, and then, uh, you know, around the same time, I joined the marching band then meeting the guys in Jane's. And then of course, like you said, Rob Trujillo and meeting new guys. When I played with other bands, I was lucky to be surrounded by different types of uh, musicians. And those things really helped me, I guess, stay stimulated and stay interested, even though my love affair with the stick and hitting things is the same. It's, it's like buying a new record. You really, all of a sudden, what have I been missing this whole time? This is a great record. I can't believe I, don't, I haven't listened to this, you know? And I think that's really the important thing with an artist. We don't really ever have to stop learning or maybe we're not athletic enough, like, a, like an athlete's got to hang up his mitt or put up his cleats one day. A musician doesn't. A musician at 80 years old can still be a badass. So let's talk about great records. The Panic Channel. Mm. That's a great record. Thank you. Will this happen again? Why Cry was actually uh, a music video that just appeared up here in Canada on uh, on TV. And like, I got to listen to the song again. So I, I downloaded the song back when we had, uh, what was it, LimeWire, BearShare, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Whatever it was called. Um, and then I bought the record. and. Uh, I'll be honest, I lost the record and then I, I kind of came back to it when I was like, hey, I'm going to be talking to Stephen Perkins and I, I listened to that whole thing. The, the question I have for you is, will this band ever happen again? Because there is some type of uh, chemistry there that I really believe that it, the time for it is now. I mean, like... Oh, thank you. Well, me and Dave and Chris are still, of course, Jane's Addiction when we're with Perry and when we did the record with Steve Isaacs, it was Panic Channel, but the, the friendship didn't change. But Steve Isaacs, I think, is maybe put up a, a different angle on what he wants to do with his voice. 
And I don't know if he's uh, in or out if we do Panic Channel because we haven't really discussed it. But it's really a, a commitment to each other. But I do, I love that record. The experience of making those tunes was what I love about a band is being together day after day in a room. No one's there. You got your instrument and you write a song and you perfect it and you practice it until it becomes second nature. And that's what Jane's did. That's what porno did. And that's what Panic Channel did. Nowadays, it's tough. A lot of people send each other tracks. Well, of course, in the last 90 days, especially because we can't be in the same room. But in the last, you know, five, 10 years, people send tracks and they don't work on songs together over and over in a room. And uh, that's that was the magic of Panic Channel. Also examining the poem, uh, examining the idea where these words should be uh, brought to life, and what is more important, the the message, and or the guitar solo that they're equal. And so there was an equal share of everyone bringing something to the table on that record. I love the way the drums sound on that record. They're mixed nice and loud. And I played them with a lot of muscle. And I think, uh, you know, to get on stage and do those songs again, you know, based on what you just said, uh, yeah, the time, the time is always right. Same with porno and Jane's, you know, there's, there's a need for people to get together and celebrate music and hopefully not in their car, hopefully in a room together, you know. Hopefully it's very soon. Are, are we saying now that you guys are sharing uh, tracks for a new James Addiction record? Nothing at that point yet, but there were sharing ideas and we're sharing the, the interest of a future because to us, the, like I said earlier, there's so much pain and, and the color blue in our life and fear and some of it's real information, some of it's misinformation, some of it's blown out of proportion. You know, it's like when you stub your toe, you know you're going to walk again, but you got to go, ah, God, just killing me. And 10 minutes later, it's over. Well, I think the world has just stubbed his toe. And we're all reacting, and we're jumping up and down, and it hurts. But it, soon that toe will stop throbbing, and you can get back to business. And I think that's what everybody in Jane's and everybody around me in different bands and especially Los Angeles, there's so many great musicians. Everyone is finished jumping up and down with the broken toe and they're ready to get to work. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's a good time, kind of like Jackson Pollock back to another painter before he threw the paint, he actually used a brush and he was painting like everybody else. And then he went, I've had enough. The pressure cooker, he stubbed his toe and he threw the paint. And people thought he was crazy, but he changed the direction of art. And I think that's where we're at. There's a moment now where people can look back at 2020 and say, what a mess, but look what happened afterwards. And that's what I think everybody in Jane's and everybody in, in, in the community of music and art is, is looking forward to the, the, the AC after COVID, opposed to BC before COVID, you know? And there's hopefully people are going to be more tolerant of each other, more interested in each other's stories and more curious about other people. I think maybe that's, um, and also to, to appreciate what we are so lucky to have on this planet is 
the love of socializing together and the love of transportation and getting on a plane and visiting other places and tasting food from other cities and bringing that experience back home. We're missing that. And I think that's the beauty of art and music is that it's homegrown. Yes, I grew up in L.A. and I sound like I'm from L.A., just like Van Halen sounds like Los Angeles, not New York. You've got to use your environment to make your music. But we know now we can visit anything on YouTube and we can get on a plane soon and, and get places and taste and feel other people's, you know, to me, when I get to a town, I want to know the best restaurant that all the kids like to go to, the best record store. Where's the park where all the punks are writing music? I want to be around something that is bubbling with creativity. And I think that is really really going to hook us back in and, and bring a lot of great music and art. You know, just like a great athlete right now, he's not playing, he or she is not playing in front of a crowd, but hopefully they're at home training. So when they get back in front of a crowd, they can knock us out and really show us what, what it feels like to be inspired by a great ball game or a great concert or a great movie and, and laughing together in a movie theater, that experience when you're at home watching a comedy, it's funny. But when you're in a movie theater watching a comedy and everyone's laughing together, it's funnier. And it's the same joke, you know? You know, right now is a very good time to escape, especially with music. There's so much to discover out there. And I know you've been in this band for quite some time, Jane's Addiction. How hard is it to keep the band going for so long. I mean, you guys have your hiatuses as well. Does that come down to a point where it's like, you know what, let's just take a break. We'll chill out and we'll revisit it. Is that how you guys look at it or, or you guys get in a fight and then it's over and then you guys get back together. How does this happen? Like, I mean, it's really all of the above. I mean, like I said earlier, I love the dedication that Lars and James have to each other through losing a bass player or firing somebody or, you know, the silly thing of cutting their hair and the whole metal world's like, what have you done? You know, and, and the chili peppers going through guitar players and there's a dedication to each other. And Jane's Addiction has that, but we also have a love affair like we did in the beginning of the band. We had separate lives and we have separate friends and separate interests. So we do need to feed those to make Jane's Addiction relevant and it's not about here's you know a, a x amount of money and go do the x amount of shows and here's your next record then this is how a cookie cutter system works because we could never just do it for the money because we didn't want to fake it on stage if perry says three four bam it always feels good at that moment but you don't want to do it over and over just for the for the money or just because it's a contract that says we need to we definitely pay attention to our personal needs and let that lead the way and the friendships. We don't want to make the friendships suffer. We want to make sure that the friendships can thrive and last. So, yeah, it's about a, a planned break or a, a moment in time where all of a sudden the firecracker goes off and it's like, hey, we need a break. You know, I mean, maybe back in 1990, someone could have said, hey, take a year off. But no one told us that. We just went, this is it. We've been together for eight years. We can't stop seeing each other. We got to stop. And, you know, we didn't have advisors. And I don't know if we would even listen to them if we did. But we didn't. And um, I was lucky because the day Jane's Addiction broke up in Hawaii, Rob Trujillo and Mike Muir came to the show. 
and asked me to join the Infectious Grooves tour, which started 10 days later. So I only had 10 days of, of no band, latch. And I think I either covered up the pain by going back on stage or it, I just fed my, fed my blues with good news and kept, kept going, you know. And, and on the tour with Ozzy, No More Tears tour, Infectious opened up for Ozzy. Ozzy had Zach Wilde on guitar, one of the great drummers who's passed on, Randy Castillo, and the bass player, Mike Inez, who is now in Alice in Chains. Mike wrote the song, No More Tears. And it was just a great tour. So I saw a door close behind me with Jane's and a brand new door opened. And I, I thought, this is going to keep happening in my life. Don't be afraid to close the door, open a new one, and maybe go back to the other door and say what's going on in there. Like Jane's Addiction got back together in 97 with Flea on bass. And I was like, okay, there's another rebirth as a rhythm section. I've got the great Flea. And it didn't sound like Jane's Addiction from the 80s. It sounded like a new band because Flea and Navarro were playing in the Chili Peppers for a year and a half prior to that. So they had a friendship that was pretty much unbreakable. And me and Perry had our porno relationship. And, and it really is about friendships, relationships, and paying attention to your heart and not the, not the bank account. Because if Jane's Addiction stayed together for 30 years, yeah, we'd have more records out and we'd sell more T-shirts and we would have sold more tickets. But we wouldn't have had all these different experiences with different musicians. And I think that's what our, our journey was. I was thinking about this today. At the time that Jane's Addiction blew up, we're talking a humongous explosion in the L.A. scene. You've got uh, what have been the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Metallica, uh, 1990 Guns N' Roses as well. All these bands, if that happened today, do you think the same thing would have happened? Well, you know, there was this punk rock scene in L.A. that hit the ceiling, you know, uh, Fear and Black Flag and the Minutemen and even X. They were putting out records, but they weren't going to get any bigger. They had their core crowd. And those bands didn't do much touring nationwide or even globally. And then you had the rock scene that came off the strip, which was Motley and Rat and some bands. And they were global. They were massive. But a lot of that stuff was in repeat mode. And there were labels were trying to repeat the formula and find other bands that did that. So there was this great moment where punk rock and, and hard rock ran out of gas. And a lot of that stuff would end at midnight. But uh, Jay's Addiction's party started at midnight. We were the after-hours band. We went from midnight till 6 a.m. downtown L.A. So you saw a group of punk rockers and a group of heavy metal cats and also filmmakers and writers and, and future promoters, the promoters that do the Warp Tour and do Coachella. They were all there as young people. And everyone was wondering, what's next? Chili Peppers and Fishbone had two records out before Jane's did our first record. So there was this, they were a little more funk based, but there was this new sound happening. And if, there, if you look at the, the early Jane's also had this funk with Pigs and Zen and Idiot's Rule. And, you know, it was like maybe a, a six or eight months later, we started finding more of the darker grooves that we embraced. But 
you know, to say what would happen now, it's it's tough because people don't buy records. We had Warner Brothers records say, hey, go practice. We won't give you a producer. You produce your music. We won't give you an art director. You direct your own art direction. We'll put you on every poster, on every record store, at every bus stop. You know, every bus stop and every record store will see your record. And it's up to them to choose to buy it or not. We've got a marketing team that's going to market. We have a radio team. We're going to get you on radio. So you had, it wasn't like a do it yourself. Like nowadays you had a team and we were fortunate because Warner Brothers said, we don't want to touch you. We want to show the world the weird after hours LA scene. We don't want to have you styled by a stylist. We don't want to put you in a, a place that every other band is taking a photo. Go take a photo on the back of a bus or in a, junkyard do whatever you want show the world what you guys are what makes you original so we were fortunate and a little bit spoiled in a sense so i'm not sure if any band is going to get that kind of moment where they can be themselves with actual promotion they have to promote themselves they have to do it themselves so you know i appreciate the the 360 job that a musician has to do he has to know social media he has to know how to get uh and, you know not radio but how to market his music and to make it maybe he can sink it into a movie or a commercial and of course the that's a, it's kind of a wrong world word viral but the viral moment when something happens and it's even bigger than the band it's something maybe a video or a or something that coincides with a song, a message. And I think all that comes into play now. And so it's definitely a different environment. But, you know, Guns N' Roses and Jane's Addiction and, and what came after Jane's with the Pumpkins and Tool and Rage and Primus, uh, they all sounded different. And they all had great musicians. And they all were fairly brave and courageous with their, you know, production. So that I think it will never end. If people want great music and great, great courage and, and, and to break the walls down, you know, I mean, 20 years ago, someone skating, a, you know, Tony Hawk could never think of what kids are going to do today on the skateboard, but what he was doing was breaking ground. So as long as musicians are still breaking ground and artists are breaking ground, I think there's always a chance there'll be another movement, a music movement. You know, 100 years ago, a musician might buy a piano, 60 years ago, a guitar. Now that musician might be buying a computer. But it's the same musician. He wants to be a creative person. It's the tool that's different. So, you know, for me, a drum is ancient. It's one of the first, your voice and the drum, the first instruments. And that never changes. And when I think about my drum rhythms, I truly think about a hand drum. And then what would I do if I had a drum set? How do I re repeat that influence that I have? You think about African rhythms and then watch an elephant walk. They go together. You think about rhythms in New York with a dubstep and you look at the traffic and the lights, it works. So you use your environment and, your, and you be topical. You take the topics of today and you put it in your music and art. 
So I think, yes, to answer your question, there's a chance that music can also become, uh, I guess, in a sense, the tip of the arrow, because the arrow needs the whole stick to fly, but there still has to be a sharp edge for it to go through something. But without the stick behind it, it's got no momentum, you know? So we need, uh, we need ideas and we need pain and we need delivery and, and, and can put that together, you know? Let's talk about the Scott Page Think Experience project you're working on. Um, that's something I want to see. Let's, let's talk about that. Well, that's what I was going to said earlier. When I, when I uh, first started playing music, I couldn't find any jazz players. I couldn't find anybody that played saxophone or trumpet or barely piano. And as I got older and, uh, and started meeting new musicians, I was able to find players that, that played jazz. And meeting Scott Page, we don't do jazz, but we both come from a place where that conversation is so important and how it feels. And so that was my friendship, how Scott and I met was through Norwood Fisher, the bass player from Fishbone. But uh, there was this um, instant friendship musically that we both shared. And Norwood had the idea of doing a Floyd record, which is a huge undertaking. And from that became Think. And our first experience was Think Floyd. And let's explore the Pink Floyd music and bring our personalities to it because bass players from Fishbone and uh, we have Tony Franklin from The Firm, they don't play like Roger Waters. And I myself don't play like Nick Mason. So we're going to make it sound different, but we're going to you know, pay, uh, uh, be honorable to the music because it's so meaningful and the lyrics are so incredible. And that's how the, the friendship started. And then Think EXP really is about this immersive experience. We did 45 shows at the LA Art Dome, which was kind of look up at the ceiling opposed to look at the band. And there's this incredible live two or three computer artists working together. And it's not a pre-planned show. It's not to a click track. It's not syncing up with anything. It's just a free form, but it's also the interpretation of the lyrics and the rhythm and the pulse. And we were thinking, how do we bring music to another level? Then we started bringing futon beds at the gig with subsonic speakers and people are laying in the bed looking at the ceiling they're not sitting in a chair or standing in a mosh pit looking at the band and they're feeling and hearing music and watching these visuals and the visuals just because the song is called money doesn't mean the visuals are going to represent money it's an experience and so that's really how think is is taking this uh, I, I would say you know uh, this emotional approach to the to the live show and to bring people emotionally to their knees in a sense let them feel it and just go oh i can't take it anymore i need to just give in uh my my bed is shaking with subs my visuals are swirling and there's there's two or three guitar players and a sax player and a singer and two keyboardists and a rhythm section that's knocking it over out of the park and so that was really the the dream of think is to bring people together and also 
listen to each other and also listen to the visual artists and then try to make a bigger picture, you know, not just, wow, the drums sound great tonight. I'm happy. No. How does it look? How does it feel? How does the experience happen when you get out of your car and you walk into the gig? What starts happening? At this great art park, there was VR stations and there was uh, AVR stations where you can get out of reality. And I think that's really the, the line has been erased between real and not real, uh, fact and fiction. Uh, you know, I remember hearing Pete Townsend from The Who say, well, why do you think we play so loud? Because you came here to hear The Who. You didn't come here to meet girls. You didn't come here to talk to your lad. You came to hear. So that's how I feel. You came here for the experience. And, and so you have to kind of like give in. It's a visual, audio, emotional experience. And, and you walk away feeling something. And, and sometimes it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's very potent. And sometimes it's quite light. But I think that's really the interpretation of the viewer and the audience member. The, uh, sorry, Stephen, thanks a lot for being, uh, taking the time out of your day to uh, speak with me today, man. Uh, I really appreciate it. I ask every guest on the show, what do you take in your coffee? It's called Meet Me for Coffee. I'm taking you out for coffee when you come here to Toronto. What do you take? Absolutely. Well, if I'm going to do an espresso, it's a shot. It's clean. But if I'm going to have a coffee hot... A little bit of cream, a little bit of sugar. If I'm going to have a coffee cold, a little more cream, a little more sugar. And then again, I just was so lucky to travel to Guatemala and Mexico and Peru and uh, Ecuador with a drum clinic tour with DW Drums. And the coffee experience was unbelievable. The, the love of chocolate and coffee in South America really surprised me. And there is such a difference in every, every region and a, such a, a, a love affair they have with brewing and presenting the coffee. So to me, it's about flavor. And of course, I, I'll always take it black to get the flavor, but I do like a little bit of a, a, a cream to bite some of the acid and a little bit of sugar to bring up some of that, that, that sweetness on the final tongue touch. Thanks for asking. Anytime, man. Coffee's my life. Rock and roll is my life. How do you like your coffee? Uh, black or nothing in it. I don't want to yeah. offend anybody. So I'm drinking one right now, actually. I got my, uh, my, I'm a big hockey fan, so. Oh, there you go. Nice. Yeah. As you can see, the jerseys behind me. I have actually one, but I have many other ones. And I got my, my, uh, my jazz bases. I have a Marcus Miller jazz base. If you want to say, um, you know. Wow. Jazz. Um, I have also on the side over here, you probably can't see it, but it's a Getty Lee jazz bass and it's autographed by him as well. Um, wow. Well, that's one thing I thought when we lost Neil Pert and then Kobe Bryant, it seemed like 2020 just started to go down the drain. <laughs> yeah. We lost, we lost like two guys. Like to me, Neil Pert is Einstein meets Bruce Lee. And the same with Kobe. yeah, same with Kobe. They're thinking, but their their athleticism is unbelievable. And you know, twenty twenty had to slap America and the globe all in the face. Say, wake up, man! What's next? But it was it was so painful when Neil 
moved on. And it was such a shock when Kobe did. And um, it's, it's been a, a strange, strange year, man. Strange. But it's going to be good for the, the silver lining. What's next from the art and the music? That's what I'm looking forward to. There's lots of creativity in the air. I mean, I started this show, that this show in particular, during this time. And it's like, you, you can't just sit back and like, just read the news and watch the news. You'll get too lost in it, you know? And, uh, for me, I, I do this show. I work, I, I keep myself occupied and people need to maybe practice some drums, take up some new habits, write some songs, you know, uh, maybe do some laundry, keep yourself occupied, you know? So I I really appreciate you coming out and, uh, meet me for coffee. Uh, Stephen Perkins from Jane's Addiction. You've seen him on stage with the Red Hot Chili Peppers as well at one point. That's true. Yeah. How was it playing with John Frusciante? Well, I've known John since uh, the the end of the 80s. And me and Flea and John had a band called The Three Amoebas. So uh, he's one of the most fantastic, emotional, spiritual artists I've met. Uh, to play with him is quite colorful and sensitive. And also, he's very giving as a musician. And he's uh, also very alert of what's happening on everybody's instrument and what everybody's doing. He's not at all self-obsessed with what his guitar sounds like. Of course, he loves to make sure it sounds the way he wants it. But he wants the band to sound good. And he's uh, he's... He's one of the greatest, really is. John Fashante is one of the greatest. I, I agree, and I'm really happy that he came back to play at the Chili Peppers, although the last guy, Josh, I'll give him credit. I saw them live. He was pretty good. So, Josh, I mean, I saw PJ Harvey 20 years ago, and this guy was playing keyboards and drums and guitar then bass. That was Josh Klinghoffer. Hmm. He was a young guy, and I was like, who is this? He's marvelous. Who is this? And then, of course, it turned out to be Josh. So. There you go. He's always had it, always will. And maybe we will see him again in a brand new project. He's got that, that credit behind him, and he's really good. Obviously, very down-earth person as well. I had a chance to talk to him too. So until next time, man, let's do it again. But next time, we will do it in Toronto. That's, a, that's right, man. Break for coffee in Toronto. Coffee break. I'm there. Stephen Perkins. I love to play. I love to play music. I love to play dad. I love to play music with my son.